Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners, here we are at episode three. So this episode has two parts. First up, I have a guest chat with Dr. Julie Zampini and Dr. Faye Dennis, all about pleasure and drugs, our topic for this week. And second, I introduce you to another member of our Drug Policy Voices team, Dr. Aphrodita Nikolova. And we talk about our research project, where we are so far and how you can get involved. So this month, we're speaking about pleasure and drugs. So the pleasures, the benefits, the positives are not often spoken about in the public realm. They're not discussed in policy, they're absent from treatment settings and media reports. And again, as we've seen with other episodes, this skews our understanding about the meaning and motivation for using drugs and the people who use them get misunderstood too. However, those who speak to people about why they use drugs, so people like me, researchers within the social sciences, what is consistently found is people speaking about the pleasures and the positive meaning that drug taking has in their lives. So this might be feeling good, it might be connected with others, escaping the strains of life. So next up, I'll introduce our guests and we'll chat all things pleasure and drugs. So what I'll do first of all, listeners, is introduce our guests today. So we have Dr. Julie Zampini, who's a senior lecturer in criminology at Greenwich University. Julia um, is currently leading the People and Dance Floors Research Project, a really exciting project that uh, we at Drug Policy Voices have been following and are very supportive of. It's a great project. So that explores specifically drug use, music, dance floors. Uh, Julia has her own podcast and also a documentary. Peopleanddancefloors.com for more information. I'm sure you'll talk more about that, Julia, as we go through. So hello, Julia. Hello, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. And then our second guest is Dr. Faye Dennis, and she is a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths University. So Faye specialises in the sociology of the body, uh, and her prior research is focused on injecting drug use, um, and she has a particular interest in pleasure around that. So her book, Injecting Bodies in More Than Human Worlds, was published in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Sociology and Health and Illness Prize. So congratulations on that, Faye, and welcome. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Now, I know we're going to have a great chat. And, you know, when we think about pleasure and drug use, um, maybe the things that come to mind are kind of, you know, thinking about stimulants and euphoria, the buzz, the maybe kind of empathy, friendship, maybe like taking the stresses out of daily life um, as well. But what I really love about both of your work is that you explore and expand um, that that notion of pleasure so, um, Julia, let's go to you first. Can you tell me a little bit about how the way that your research has looked at pleasure? Yeah. So when you were saying the stimulants and the buzz, I was like, yeah, that's pretty much uh, me and my research in the sense that um, 
people, the people and dance floors project uh, because of the connections between dance floors and drugs as, as a kind of leisure activity. Uh, it fits in with a more traditional conception of kind of drugged pleasure and mm. you know the, the type of pleasure seeking activities that uh, will happen uh, during leisure time with music with people socializing and so on so yeah so it's very much very much a theme uh, throughout mm. all of my participants narratives but it's not an explicit theme um, mm. So I didn't ask people uh, whether um, using drugs, you know, gives them pleasure. So I didn't use the word pleasure, but it's quite clear from 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 the participants' narratives that pleasure underpins. It's, it's, it's basically plastered all over their um, experiences and understanding. Part of me thinks it's implicit because people are still scared of uttering the word pleasure it's still a taboo and even in the context of you know people using drugs and talking about their use of drugs which is also a taboo they still don't talk about pleasure uh, explicitly but of course they talk about things like fun and freedom they talk about the release of uh, using drugs in the context of uh, yeah dance for spaces and uh, also a big one is freedom of expression and the ability to connect to others in a more seamless way, in an uninhibited way. And I think all of these things are uh, related to pleasure, at least. Really, really interesting. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of our uh, listeners as well. So Faye, can you tell us a little bit more about your research and how it's looked at pleasure? Yes, so my research has looked at pleasure in relation to heroin and crack cocaine use and injecting heroin and crack cocaine use, which are two of the most substance, two of the most like vilified substances in society, and the route of administration, which is the most kind of um, vilified as well. So these substances and routes of administration are thought about in terms of addiction and loss and lack and very like negative terms. So pleasure mm. is, so they're seen as devoid of pleasure, but in my experience leading up to the project and in the project, people use people who use these substances um, use drugs for a myriad of reasons, like many different reasons, and pleasure is in amongst them. And I think there's a real danger in seeing this drug use as completely devoid of pleasure um, in terms of kind of stigmatising these people even more. So I just think there's... Um, I think we have to be careful in terms of drawing these divides between recreational drug use as pleasurable and addictive drug use as not pleasurable because I think there is still pleasure in and amongst addictive drug use. Yeah definitely and I think you know reading your work has really expanded my own horizons thinking about pleasure. So why you know kind of suppose moving on then and maybe I'll come to you first Faye, why do you think that it's difficult to talk about pleasure then? And did your participants actually find it difficult to yeah. talk about pleasure, I suppose? Yeah, I think it's difficult um, in relation to my um, study. It's difficult for people to talk about pleasure because of this, because what I said about this divide about recreational and addictive drug use. And I think there is certain kind of scripts that people have to perform in drug services. So like pleasure just isn't something that's allowed to be talked about in treatment settings. In my book, I talk about this in terms of um, this one woman came to treatment and in the assessment form she was asked um, why she used drugs and she said for fun but this wasn't seen as like a legitimate reason for why she could be using drugs because then she's 
seen as like not ready for change. So she was kind of encouraged to interpret her uh, reasons more around a miscarriage that she had suffered. Like what people say out of treatment is very different to what people say in treatment settings. So that's how I got interested in the project, because I've worked previously um, in homeless um, services and people would often talk about the pleasures of drug use. But then I was noticing as soon as they went into key working sessions or with their doctor, pleasure was like not talked about at all. You can talk about it in some settings, but not in others. I think that's really interesting in terms of thinking about treatment. And it's just kind of pinged something in my mind about going to the doctor and being asked how many units of alcohol that you drink and how you say different things to different people. Like you're not going to go into a big long chat to your doctor about how much you love drinking Prosecco at the weekend or how you, you love gin and you drink it every night. It's it's a certain setting. And I think yeah. we've got to kind of take that in. And it's good that your research got to that. So people in treatment, in order to get the support they need, they need mm. to say certain things. Like this woman that I was talking about, um, it was deemed that if she if she was using drugs for pleasure, maybe that she's maybe she's going to misuse the substitution medication that she's given. So you have to be careful in what you say, I think. And the same yeah. with like going to the doctor and not telling them about how much Prosecco you drink. It's like you need to say certain things to get the support that you want definitely and there's there's a sense of agency in that isn't there that that you kind yeah. of looking after looking out for yourself and looking after yourself there because you you need to in a particular setting julia why do you think it's difficult to talk about pleasure or different forms of it maybe yeah i think it's it's almost like in relation to what faye was saying i was thinking it's as if pleasure and pain cannot coexist at the same time or like you know, you can't make space for both positive and negative feelings to exist at once. And that's massively problematic for all sorts of things, including talking about drugs. I think, you know, there's lots of reasons why it's difficult to talk about pleasure. And I guess uh, I could start with uh, talking about something that I wrote recently. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a chapter called Pleasurable Risk. And it was all about trying to understand what it is that pushes people towards risky behaviors that are also pleasurable and because it's within a criminology context we focused on deviant behaviors non-normal behaviors like for example bdsm so bondage domination sadism and masochism and chemsex which is a, is a term is a bit i don't like the term but we use it because people understand it and it's about usually referring to gay men uh, having sex in groups under the influence of some substances most commonly that would be uh, ghb uh, crystal methamphetamine and sometimes also methadrone what we tend to see is that these activities are studied and understood as problematic as pathological sometimes they, sometimes they're intervened upon by public health uh, or medical authorities or um, sometimes by criminal justice uh, authorities depending on for example if BDSM goes wrong and then there is a, a case that warrants intervention by the criminal justice system and prosecution and the way that we see these things are like they're not normal and they are bad, they're harmful, they're negative. And we don't recognize the pleasure seeking that also uh, informs uh, the pursuit of these activities. But then we also, what we do in the, in the, in the, in the chapter is we contrast this to uh, extreme sports. Now, extreme sports are often seen as heroic. They're seen as something that is performed by 
generally heterosexual, able-bodied, uh, successful men, uh, for the most part. So when we think about, uh, you know, chemsex or sex on drugs and compare it with extreme sports, they both are quite risky activities. Uh, they both involve pleasure seeking, but they are portrayed very differently. So we see one as heroic and we glorif glorify it. And then we see the other one as, uh, you know, harmful and um, risky and dangerous. And, you know, the question is, you know, why do we make that distinction? And that's an important thing to think about, because when, when we look at the kind of uh, rates of injury or the mortality, it's actually comparable. It's not that different. So, yeah, so I, I guess I'm interested in, in that, you know, why it is that we think about those two activities differently. I'm glad you brought in the, you know, kind of sex into this as well. I know some of my participants kind of talked about their their kind of drug taking and maybe why they wouldn't speak to people openly about it. And some of them kind of said, you know, this is a kind of private activity. I wouldn't talk about my sex life in public. So this is I see drug taking very much the same. But there's there's something about a great British taboo, isn't there? And a, and a kind of like oh, we don't talk about those kinds of things. Oh, it's a bit seedy. It's a bit shameful. You know, these kinds of things that, you know, we just don't seem to have those discussions about. And whether that is something in particular about British kind of culture, maybe one thing. And also the idea that if it's not a problem, then let's not talk about it. You know, I think that's the thing that in terms of kind of prohibition and things like that, that you know, it's all around harm, isn't it? So those conversations around pleasure are more difficult to have. In your minds or from your experience or research, what voices do you think get missed um, when speaking about pleasure? Yeah, and this actually ties in with what Julia was just saying. So I think our current understanding of pleasure revolves around a very kind of white, middle class, able bodied, predominantly male drug use. And as soon as it becomes something that's done by women, by people of colour, people with disabilities and LGBT people, it becomes something that's kind of done to them and that's devoid of pleasure. So I think um, a great example of this is some of our current understandings around chemsex, which is what Julia was just talking about, which has been linked to gay men being repressed and um, people being ashamed of their sexuality. Yeah, so instead of seeing it as something that's positive, it's seen as something that's negative and people are trying to escape their kind of current situation and there's some great kind of work coming out of um, Australia by Kane Race and Kieran Pinner and other people and in the UK by Alex Dimmock at Goldsmiths and other people that are trying to look at the kind of explorative and ex um, life-affirming and kind of generative qualities around chemsex rather than this idea that it's all about uh, you know escaping from something that escaping from um, shame so it's more kind of the positive experiences of it and the care that can be generated around um, these drug using practices. Yeah definitely and having a different focus I think is is key. Yeah. Um, ch changing the focus sometimes we as researchers need to change the focus you know like and I think that's the you know one of the things to talk about. Julia what do you think? You know there are so many voices that get missed in discussions uh, about drug policy and about pleasure. On the positive side, I would say we, we are seeing young people take on social media or take, take through social media channels, expressing them, themselves much more openly in terms of their pleasure 
and their private lives and domain. And I think that's that can be a really positive thing, like uh, young people realising that uh, the sex education that they receive in school is not very good and then taking to social media to try to talk more openly about things like sex or consent. So these types of platforms like Vice, uh, as well as social media, have kind of opened up avenues for young people to talk about maybe drugs more openly, sex more openly, and so on. So that's actually quite a positive thing uh, overall, I'd say. In amongst young people, I think the intersection of feminism uh, has become more mainstream, more, more practiced, more understood. So that has implications about the way in which people see their identity, but also talk about their identity more openly and take a more kind of openly positional kind of stance on issues around um, sexuality as well as drug use, potentially. So that's a positive, I guess, of what I'm, I'm seeing. The other side of that is that there are so many voices that get missed still, uh, you know, I think older people, older drug users specifically, they don't really have a public platform, uh, as, far, as far as I can say. Working class people in general, working class women users, again, don't really have a platform. Asian drug users don't really have a platform. Black drug users don't have much of a platform yet. Although there is, I think, you know, people that are sort of taking on a more kind of uh, taking on the issue of drug policy to talk about racial justice for example which is great to mm-hmm. see so yeah there's there's I guess a lot of work to be done to to open up these discussions mm-hmm. and have have platforms for different for the diversity of people that uses drugs the, the pleasure issue is always going to be a tricky one uh, to talk about openly because of the shame associated with it and because of the the thing that people see it as associated with the private realm so mm-hmm. yeah actually just to add to that I was going to say that there's a great movement coming out of user activist groups in Europe they're sort of working under the slogan of narco feminism and this is kind of an intersectional movement that's trying to draw attention to all the kind of different violences that we've just been talking about um, like racism, sexism, and also um, how that intersects with prohibition and how people of colour and women are particularly affected by these kind of multiple violences. So that's a really good movement. And they're, they're explicitly around acknowledging the creativity of pleasure, or the creativity of drug use and drug use for yeah life-affirming kind of work. So that's a really good movement and platform. Absolutely. And I think connected to that as well, thinking about kind of, you know, pleasures associated with not being in pain, pleasures associated of not being depressed and and, and it releasing some form of anxiety, pleasure of not feeling trauma. You know, there's lots of things going on there that helps us understand pleasure in, in, a, in a bigger way. And I think certainly when I've spoken to people who've used uh, things like mushrooms for anxiety, magic mushrooms for anxiety, actually you know the pleasure of not being in pain anymore and not feeling so anxious is huge and Mm. you know possibly the same for kind of trauma I know with cannabis and pain Mm. you know some uh, a research participant kind of talked about alcohol masks pain Mm. but cannabis release you know made her body relax Mm. to an extent that she was just not in pain and that was pleasurable Exactly. I think it's important that we have a much broader understanding of pleasure to acknowledge it in all these different places. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it was interesting. Some of the people I came across through the project talked about ketamine use for depression, self-administered, not as part of a trial, but like still, uh, you know, just getting benefits from 
from that particular type of drug use. Cannabis and MDMA for sexual and other traumas, all of that stuff that, you know, people can, you know, get pleasure from or release from that uh, they wouldn't be able to otherwise. And sometimes mm-hmm. even using certain drugs in order to release themselves from uh, addiction to other drugs. So people spoke about how they um, use um, MDMA, but also uh, psychedelics in order to get over it or to change. And that allowed them to change their relationship and the way they saw, for example, their relationship to cocaine or alcohol or cigarettes. Yeah, that's also really interesting as well, that kind of more kind of complex web of it's not just a single lane drug use where it's a, yeah, it's a linear kind of relationship or process. Take the drug, feel good, come down, end. You know, like it's <laughs> it's so much more complicated than that, isn't it? It's pleasure and drugs education for young people. This was a question that we asked in our survey. So we asked when providing drugs education to young people, it should be acknowledged that taking drugs can be fun. You know, we had around 70 percent of people agreed with that. But anecdotally, people kind of said that was a really difficult one to answer. Do you think pleasure should be part of drugs education for young people when we're providing that to young people? Should we should we talk about pleasure to them? Faith, we'll go to you. Yeah, first. I think that pleasure is important is an important part of any conversation around drug use. I think sometimes if we were able to concentrate more on the positive effects than the negative effects. We might actually have more luck in uh, reducing some of the bad effects. I think it's about where we put the emphasis. So young people, all people debatedly, are kind of using um, drugs because I guess they enjoy them in some kind of sense. So I think we need to engage people in these terms rather than just always about how to reduce the harms. I think it's about how, like, helping people understand how to negotiate positive effects and then yeah might have more luck in reducing the bad yeah Mm -hmm. and there's people in my kind of field that have written about this in terms of uh, needle and um, syringe exchange so Tim Rhodes and Magdalena Harris write about this in the paper so harm reduction is about reducing harm and we've kind of engaged people in um, using clean syringe syringes you know, in terms of reducing kind of bloodborne viruses and infection, but actually we might have more luck in uh, people taking up these syringes if we kind of framed it more in terms of I use a clean syringe because it'd be sharper and you'll get a better hit. So it's about kind of where we put the emphasis, I think. Mm, Yes, I think pleasure is a really important part of any kind of intervention on drugs. Excellent, excellent. Julia, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, my thoughts are somewhere along the line have we ever gotten anywhere by keeping stuff a secret and keeping it a taboo? Like what, so where do we get in terms of, um, you know, what, what effects does that have um, in terms of, for example, young people's first approach with drugs? So we might tell them, and we often tell them, drugs are bad, drugs are harmful. That's the main message that people get. And then they go out and they try a drug for the first time and they feel good. What, what is the outcome of that? Well, they're going to say adults or like old people lie to us about this. My experience is good. So I'm going to keep pursuing that because it makes me feel good, despite the fact that other people told me that I shouldn't. And, and without actual without having the kind of full information about, you know, effects and, uh, you know, pleasurable effects and, and also side effects, also harmful effects. Like, can we imagine 
uh, a place or a way to communicate you know all of those effects the complexity of those effects to young people within within education I, I hope so I mean certainly uh, if my parents had been more open or if my teachers had been more open with me about sex and drugs and so on maybe I wouldn't have engaged in certain risky behaviors for example or maybe I would have yeah, approached it differently I don't know but yeah it's just definitely something that we need to think about and talk about definitely you know just last couple of questions bringing it around to policy so do you think that we can build a discussion about pleasure when discussing drug policy you know thinking about engaging with policymakers, with government officials how do you think we can do that yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really good question. It's also a difficult question. You know, I think in, in a sense, what one thing that you need to address is the fear that people have uh, about the innocence of, of children and young people and, and also the fear that people have of bringing discussions about the private realm into the public realm. And I think those two things are really hard to undo. And, but I think researchers in, in the drug policy field can do a lot because, you know, to start with, I think researchers in this field have been focusing for such, such a long time on harm and not on pleasure that all of that research is fed into policymakers' minds. And so I think that if things change, I think, in, in, in the academic field, then hopefully that will also trickle down mm. to kind of policymakers. And, and I'm sure there are some policymakers who are willing to listen. Whether those mm. are the same people that are going to be empowered is a whole different matter. But I think also maybe or developing relationships with uh, people who can make decisions around uh, education in school, because we've seen massive changes in the way that sex education is, is done, especially in Scotland, being more inclusive of other types of relationships, LGBTQ communities, you know, thinking about that and th that being brought into mainstream education is a massive leap. Uh, similarly, uh, we've seen a massive step uh, forward in relation to discussions about consent. So I think it's doable. It's just, uh, yeah, it just needs a bit more time and a mm. shift in our focus and our obsession, maybe away from harm. Great. Yeah. Faye, what do you think? Yeah, I just think that if the goal of prohibition was to stop people taking drugs, it's clearly not worked. It's clearly failed. And this idea about just say no, like drugs are bad, drugs, just drugs are harmful, isn't working. So we do need different terms to engage people. And I think pleasure, yeah, should be among those terms. And it can be framed in what I was saying about engaging people in terms that are meaningful to them. I think pleasure does really important work in terms of disrupting um, what it is we imagine a drug user is. I think you're right. Just the focus on it in and of itself is is moving the conversation on. So final question, and we're asking this to everybody, and it's about optimism. <laughs> so how, both of you, how optimistic are you that drug policy will change for the better? I'm actually feeling um, pretty optimistic about change. I think if the pandemic has highlighted anything, it's our um, inequalities in society. I think it's worked to exacerbate these inequalities and highlight some of the issues that, that are facing some of the most marginalised people in society. And among those are people who use drugs. So I think there is a real sense that we're kind of fed up with the status quo. And there's some really good interventions happening. So Peter Krykot in Glasgow has just started the first um, overdose prevention site in the UK and he's gone against the law to do this 
And I think it is because there's this momentum, like we're fed up, there's all these inequalities, we need to do something. And like there's um, other innovative stuff going on around um, heroin assisted treatment. And there's this sense with that, that for decades, people have been saying that the current very limited opiate substitution treatment that we have, which is mainly on methadone and buprenorphine doesn't work for loads of people. And finally, there's um, heroin assisted treatment that's starting. So I do think there is this momentum um, of change happening that must be in some way related to the pandemic, I think. The pandemic, because of social distancing, has meant that people for the first time have been able to take their substitution medication home. So then they've got more flexibility with their treatment. So I do think there is this momentum happening, which is related to the pandemic. And yeah, I do. And there's lots of campaigning going on around um, how outdated the Misuse of Drugs Act is and stuff. And yeah, I do think there's um, change on the horizon, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I feel I want to be really optimistic. I'm like, yes, I can see it. We're on the cusp of really big changes. And I can see it, uh, you know, obviously in all of the things that Faye just mentioned uh, in relation particularly to harm reduction and uh, targeting, I guess, injecting drug users. But also, I think more broadly uh, around, you know, just just maybe us doing these projects and having these conversations is already kind of indicative that uh, even, you know, as a, as a field, drug policy is moving forward in terms of interests and variety of projects. I guess what I what I care most about is that that the change involves and continues to involve drug user voices and a, and a diversity of drug user voices because for so long um, changes have been spearheaded or, or, or led by uh, you know people in public health uh, sort of medical authorities as well as like maybe kind of criminal justice uh, criminal justice authorities and there hasn't been a lot of space for other voices to 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 be trusted enough uh, to be valued, to be valued or, or seen as valid, to be able to make a contribution. So, you know, I sometimes worry, for example, that, you know, it, by ch- in challenging prohibition, in challenging the war on drugs, we may end up kind of neglecting all the injustices that have been done um, uh, through, you know, uh, all the decades of prohibition on uh, on like poor and marginalized communities, you know, the incarceration and the and the kind of exploitation and in kind of production countries or countries countries of transit for the drug trade. So these types of type things, the things I worry about. And even when we think about decriminalizing uh, drugs, which I, I, is a principle that I espouse, that I, I support, I think it would be great in terms of, you know, uh, the potential for not criminalizing drug users for one. So it could be really good. But then I also worry about... Uh, will, will that mean that you know all drug users will be treated as as pathological, as as a pro, as problematic, as as something that needs to be you know intervened upon by about medical authorities? So you know I do worry a little bit about uh, about these things. So I think the most important thing for me to enable a more I, I guess egalitarian and and better system is is for a diversity of voices to participate in the making of a new system. Uh, so that's what I'd like to see. That sounds great. Yeah, I agree with um, Julia. There is a, a concern that, I don't know, public health route is fantastic, but there is this kind of fear around over-medicalising everything. And like going back to the overdose prevention sites or drug consumption rooms, if they become too medicalised, 
will people use them? People might not use them because they're too medicalized. And then going back to our conversation on pleasure, that's kind of an environment where pleasure is not allowed to exist. It becomes a purely kind of, um, yeah, clinic, mm. which isn't very inviting. So we do have mm. to kind of be careful as well. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. People don't want to take drugs in a clinic, you know, like it's whoever, whatever drug taker you are, whatever substance that you use, you know, it doesn't want to be over medicalized. I think those are really important points and really important points when thinking about pleasure. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. That was, uh, I really enjoyed that. And what a great chat that was. So the People and Dance Floors project can be found at peopleanddancefloors.com. And Julia has her own podcast. And I want to draw our listeners' attention to a recent podcast she did with Alex Aldridge of Royal Holloway. And they talk all things sex and drugs. So if you're interested in that topic, please give it a listen. So we've reached the final part of the episode where we talk a little bit more about our research and how you can get involved. Our research is now underway. We're in phase one. And in this phase, we're looking for people to share their personal experiences of taking or using drugs. So you can do this in three main ways. You can write perhaps a letter or a blog. You can create a poem or you can engage in a one to one interview. So all of this is confidential. We do not personally name or identify you within the research. We go to great lengths to protect your identity. So I've been doing the interviews so far, and these are more like a conversation where I ask a series of questions about what your drug use means to you, your motivations for using and the impact that it has in your life. But next up, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Aphrodita Nikolova. Now, she's a researcher on the Drug Policy Voices team. And she's leading on the more creative aspects. So the kind of creative writing, the poetry. She herself is a poet who has a background in creative arts based research. And next up, she's going to tell you more about how you can engage creatively in this project. Hello, really happy to be a part of Drug Policy Voices and the podcast today. So my background, I think I like to say the common denominator to everything that I've done so far has been poetry. I think back in school, um, I was kind of that that kid that I didn't see the point in school unless there was like the creative arts. That's where the nourishment was, which led me to do a PhD on the role of poetry and in self-development of young men that are in prison in North Macedonia and ever since then I guess what I've been doing is using the arts to stimulate self-expression and connection which is in terms of my education doing poetry as a first generation student has opened so many doors for me to run workshops across Europe and meet so many exciting um, artists um, from the Leuven Detention Centre to um, uh, performing in um, stages like in France which was really exciting to see 25 poets uh, come on stage to compete just with words um, so that's mainly um, what my work is about, um, the arts for self-development. So, yeah, I think it's great that you are combining research and arts and um, helping people express themselves in different ways. And 
that's something that we would really like our listeners to do is to engage in lots of different creative ways and to tell their story. Um, so you, uh, you have a TED Talk, don't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came about? Yes. Um, so as part of my PhD, I designed and delivered a new spoken word poetry program with a group of artists and uh, poets and hip hop artists uh, in North Macedonia. And spoken word poetry is the kind of poetry that you write and perform out loud for an audience. It's quite popularized around the world. And what it's, it's really powerful to share your truth and, and maybe change the, the stories that other people tell about ourselves. So that that talk came about exactly what you're saying that actually writing poetry is a way of uh, doing research it, it helps us understand a person's emotional world which is what I talk about in that TED talk I talk about a young man's Jess his experiences of drug use and uh, drug dealing and how powerful his words and um his poetry was to actually say my voice matters and my experiences matter and they are uh, I'm not going to be defined by how other people see me so um, that was really exciting and I based that on my previous experiences um, doing creative writing um, with a uh, American poet John Thomas Duarte um, who whose poetry is always speaking to people um, as opposed to being locked in, in an ivory tower that poetry is for by the people, really. Amazing. If people want to watch that TED Talk, what is it called? That TED Talk is called Why Spoken Word Poetry is an Essential Research Method. And I would really encourage people to see it because it's one of it's a unique sort of um, type of talk that actually positions poetry as a research method but also shares uh, a poem by uh, a young man um, that is I think is really powerful um, based on some of the comments that people uh, have come to me and said uh, after the talk. Yeah and I think working with you has really opened my eyes as well to to a whole new world and you know my background is kind of interviewing people and having people kind of tell their stories you know sometimes quite deep and personal stories and I really love this as another way that people can engage and share and create as well, you know, be part of something more creative. So can you tell us then a little bit about what you've been doing for Drug Policy Voices so far? Yes. So my role on the Drug Policy Voices is to support the, the team's work and especially um, uh, your work and vision as the um, the main um uh, re- re- lead researcher on the drug policy voices and what I've been doing is developing a range of creative methods uh, to, for people to share their stories and experiences and um, in addition to that we have been speaking to, to people who are, who are interested and we've had lots of questions in terms of well, how, how, how can we get involved and um, this is um, something that I would like to, to share more uh, for, for others as well. Great so um, so what kind of ways have people been getting involved then? Um, so yes I've been speaking to pe- people individually 
Um, some of them have been writing uh, blogs, whereas others have been creating poems. But this has been quite a diverse way of uh, exploring drug-related topics and sharing their stories. For example, uh, there's been people who decided to write uh, because we offer people uh, options uh, to write a blog in different ways. Uh, it could be writing a letter to a member of your uh, family or, or a friend uh, to speak for your truth uh, without holding back. Uh, it could be writing to a policymaker. And I think people find this really safe and confidential as it is an individual sort of uh, one-to-one uh, conversation around the blog uh, and the writing. The other way to get involved individually is to, to create a poem. I think people really like getting started um, with a remix poem which really is listening maybe to a podcast or collecting uh, words that other people have said and rearranging this uh, as their own new text uh, to convey their messages um, I think um, there's so many ways uh, I, I know that one person I, I thought it was really exciting they took up this type of poem that we call a self-portrait poem and um, you can write a self-portrait poem just by free writing anything that comes to mind. But in the end, you title the poem Self-Portrait as, and here you decide if you identify as a drug taker. And if you find, for instance, that drug taking is a liberating or positive experience, you may title the poem Self-Portrait as a liberating way of being uh, in the world. So I think there's so many options uh, with these methods. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And it's really, really good how uh, there's just so many different ways. It really is. People can be as free and creative as they want to be. Um, however, what about if people, um, you know, don't have any experience of doing poetry before? They've never tried it, but they would like to try it. Uh, can you help them? No, absolutely. I think actually, I actually see it the other way around. Most of the time it's... Um, um, it sounds cheesy, but it's really people that, that help me see uh, poetry in a new light or creative writing in a new light. Um, I think that the thing that is actually in my mind in terms of writing poetry is that there's really no wrong way of doing it. And um, I beg to differ. <laughs> Shakespeare's uh, line is, I was not born under a rhyming planet. I think everybody is born under a rhyming planet. But you don't have to rhyme <laughs> if you write a poem. Uh, I think uh, I will be able to guide people, anyone who's interested or to just maybe curious to try out, I will guide people step by step. That's great. Really, really interesting. And I think that... Listeners will be happy to hear and probably really encouraged that you can work with them. So, you know, you're a poet yourself, you that the kind of podcast topics and debates that we're having will also stimulate some interest so that people can tell their stories. You might not agree with uh, the way or the tone of the, the podcast topics. That's OK. Whatever story you want to tell, if it's relevant to you and it's relevant to your experiences, then we want to we want to hear from you. Another kind of practical question then, Aphrodita, is, you know, how long does it take? What kind of time commitment is it going to take from people? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I think I've worked with people usually it's really good to have that time from 45 minutes to one hour but to be honest it's really it's about what people feel comfortable with for instance well there are different options three options that have come up so far has been um, a person wants to, to actually have write the poem or, or a blog in their own time so they will spend 15 to 20 minutes offline and then we will maybe meet for uh, 15 to 30 minutes to have a chat around it so it doesn't have to be a full-blown one-hour session but for people who feel like actually I want to be to just explore I don't know how to get started offline so we will meet online and we will try out different writing um, activities and then again just have a, a chat about it as well. So I just want to move on to say that we ha- we've had a couple of questions around eligibility and who we want to hear from. Basically, we want to hear from anybody with personal experiences of using drugs. So things like cannabis, ecstasy, heroin, those are controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act. And it might be that you're taking medications that haven't been prescribed to you. So Valium, Xanax, things like Adderall or Modafinil as study drugs. So really anybody that's using or has used uh, these illicit substances. It's quite interesting, actually, that even uh, speaking to some people, um, they've come back and listening to the podcast and especially Matt's outdoor story of, um, yeah, becoming sort of open open about his drug use. I've come people and said to me, actually, do you know what? My brother and my father, they use drugs, but I don't actually see them as drug takers. Um, and I think that's um, a powerful realisation to just come off from just listening part of the podcast or from those sessions. So I think that's also something I find interesting to keep in mind that um, that people who, who may not see themselves as drug takers, that's perfectly um, acceptable, but um, they may actually have taken a substance that's listed on those acts. That's a really important point and thanks for bringing it up because that's what our last podcast episode was talking about, this kind of identification, but you don't need to identify, you don't need to call yourself a drug taker or a user of certain substances. It's If you've got those personal experiences, we'd like to hear from you. I think I would just like to really reiterate and make clear in terms of what you said about the ethical aspect that it's people have come and said to me you like even if you commit to write a poem and then you change your mind well that's perfectly fine I think um people have written uh, for instance a letter and they they thought actually this is quite personal I want to keep the letter for myself and just share the story speak out loud around it that's perfectly fine What we're inviting people to do is either get in contact through our website, so you can do that, drugpolicyvoices.co.uk, or um, the drugpolicyvoices at mmu.ac.uk. This is all on the website as well. I hope that's given you a little bit more information about what is involved. It's been great to introduce Aphrodita to you all, and please do get in, in touch. Thank you, Aphrodita, for coming along. Thank you so much for for the stimulating questions. And yeah, I really look forward to hearing from people and seeing what they share and write. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Ha 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 ha!